Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Good morning, everyone. It's, uh, it's really good to be back. I always tell you guys that when I travel, it's always so good to be home. But every time I travel... Um, I see more of God. It just, it opens up my heart to Him. And this trip was really, really good for my soul. Um, I got to reconnect with our partners in the field. But I also got an extended time where God just, um, I felt like He met with me, refreshed me. And uh, I'm just really grateful for that time that I had. I'm glad to be back. I feel a little weird physically, so if you would continue praying for me. I have some weird things going on with uh, the way I feel in my body. And so if you would just uh, be praying that God would just get me back to 100%, I would be grateful. And I hope this week to send out a, um, an emailed report, just giving you some, sharing with you some pictures, some things that happened on this trip, some of the things that I learned along the way. Hopefully that will be a blessing to you guys as well. This morning, we want to kick off a new sermon series, and I don't think it's going to be um, an easy series to ignore. The topic is marriage, and I, I just acknowledge, first of all, that for some of us, that is not an easy topic to hear about or think about. Um, it is a topic that brings memories of pain, it brings up thoughts of frustration, longing, um, and yet, I want to assure you that God has something for each of us in this series, something to say that we need to hear. This morning, the, the opening message is entitled, Building Blocks of Marriage. We're going to draw some lessons from the very first marriage between Adam and Eve. And even though you've been through, some of you have been through premarital counseling with me, this is not quite going to be exactly what you got from this text during those sessions, but it's going to be a little bit different. I want to read the passage out loud with you. And uh, it's Genesis 2, 18 to 25. Here's what God's word says. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field, and every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all livestock, and to the birds of the heavens, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. 
I mentioned that for some of you, um, this is not an easy topic to wrestle through. But here's what I know. According to the Bible, the story of humanity is bookended by marriage. Our story as, a, as the human race begins with the marriage of Adam and Eve, and it tells us that it will end with the great wedding banquet in heaven between Jesus Christ and the bride, his church. That whatever else we may think about or feel about this subject of marriage, it is relevant to everyone who knows Jesus because it is, it is central to the experience of being a human being. That marriage isn't primarily just about a man and a woman, but it's about revealing something so central to what it means to be human that it's the context in which some of the most basic things of being a person are revealed and brought to light for us. That if we just think about marriage as a skill set in which you learn how to get along with another person, you will greatly miss out on the true full depth of meaning that we're meant to find in marriage. In fact, Paul takes it to another level when he says in Ephesians 5, 31 to 32, listen to these words. He, he quotes again Genesis 2, 24, which we just read. But then he says this idea that a man and a woman, once strangers, both sinful, selfish, fallen, broken people, can actually come together and make a lifelong relationship. That is a profound mystery. And he says, what I'm saying is that that possibility, that experience refers to Christ and the church. So even though marriage is about a man and a woman, about falling in love, making a home, making babies, whatever else it may be, the heart of marriage is meant to point us to what he calls the profound mystery of a human's relationship with God. But this phrase profound mystery means it's not an apparently obvious point of view. That most people don't think that the point of marriage is to reveal something about God. Most people will say the point of marriage is to fill my loneliness or to procreate or to have a partner to get through life. There's a lot of practical reasons why people think they get married. But he says it's not immediately obvious to most people that the real meaning of marriage is to point us towards our relationship with God. But it is profound mystery. Profound is the Greek word mega, which means it has huge implications for us to understand it this way. Now, we're going to unpack that idea more over the course of the series. But here's one thing you can take to heart at this point of the series. That the same things that make our relationship with Jesus work are the things that will make your marriage work. And whenever you experience a breakdown in your relationship with Jesus, it will not be possible to make any kind of human relationship work for very long. That at the heart of every relationship is fundamentally the relationship we have with God. You take that away, it doesn't matter how skilled or patient or mature you are, you won't be able to make marriage work unless your relationship with Jesus Christ is at the foundation, the bedrock of your life. Now, because we're at all different places and some of you are sorely tempted to check out for self-preservation or boredom, let, let me just give you some guidance, offer you some guidance on how to hear the sermons in this series, okay? The first thing I would ask of you humbly is to set aside your existing feelings and convictions about marriage. That is not to say that what you already feel and know are wrong or invalid. It is simply to say, let's take the posture of a learner 
And rather than starting with what you already feel and are convinced of, invite God to tell you what he says. I would also ask you to put aside for the moment your personal experiences with marriage, whether good or bad, and let God speak to you. I would also ask you to put aside the impulse that is sometimes there to be contrarian or defensive or argumentative. And instead, let's all of us take this approach, that whatever else we may have experienced or feel, each of us is a sinner. We're only saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. And so we invite him as God over us to tell us what he believes and says and declares about the important subject of marriage and its relationship to our relationship with him. Human relationships horizontally and the vertical relationship we have with God are inseparable. You cannot build lifelong healthy relationships with people or even with yourself apart from a very life-giving relationship with God through Jesus Christ. When I studied Genesis 2, 18 to 25 rather carefully, I discovered that I can I put together like six sermons on this text, and there's no way we're going to be able to do justice to so rich a text. And so today, I'm going to skip a lot of stuff. And I want to just highlight what I find to be three important building blocks of marriage out of this first marriage. So just bear in mind that after you hear the sermon, it's still going to be worth your time to go back to this passage and ponder it because 50 other things will emerge as you look at it. And the first building block of marriage I want to highlight from this first marriage is a shared sense of purpose. Now, before I dive into this first point, I just want to ask everyone to look at me. Are are we together right now? I don't know if it's the gloomy weather, but man, you, you guys okay? It's going to get warm by Tuesday. The sun will come out and we'll be normal again. So let's just kind of bookmark that and hold out for hope that the weather's going to get better. Here's a shared sense of purpose that builds a solid marriage. The Lord God says, it's not good for this guy to be alone. It's curious that he says he's alone because God's with him. And yet he said, even though I'm with you, That's not enough for the human experience. That's not all I've made you for is to be with me, but I also made you to be with other people. And so he says, you're alone, Adam, even though I'm saying this to you, I'm here with you, and it's not a good state of being. So God's solution is, he says, I'm going to make a helper fit for him. Of all the words God could have chosen, I think the word helper is probably the least romantic word he could have chosen. Why does he use the word helper, right? I mean, did any of you get down on your knee, guys, and say, hey, listen, will you help me? (laughs) I mean, that's probably what you needed to say, but it it probably is not going to make for a great story on Facebook. I asked her to help me, and she said she would be my helper. And yet I think the word is chosen very carefully for a reason, because it points to a deep truth. That you don't need help to do nothing. You don't need help to simply exist and mark time until you die. If you see life as simply death's waiting room and just marking time, eating, drinking, sleeping, and then one day to die, you don't need any help to do that. But I think what what it reveals 
is that we're meant to have a purpose in life. That when he calls Eve Adam's helper, what he's revealing is that Adam has a purpose in life. In fact, I, I believe that marriage is most meaningful when we have already discovered what our life's purpose is. I don't, have any of you hitchhiked before? Just raise your hand if you've ever hitchhiked. Am I the only one in our church who's hitchhiked? That, okay, I, Jeff, I knew you were going to, all right. I knew Jeff would have hitchhiked. When you hitchhike, what's the first question that transpires between either, either spoken by the driver or the passenger? What's the first question? Yeah, where are you going? You don't just get in a car and then just start driving because it's a waste of time to get engaged in the car if they're going in the opposite direction as you. So even though you're grateful someone's helping you, if you don't have a direction, it's hard to share the journey. It's even worse when you get in the car and find out, I'm going north and this dude's going south. And you're like, hey, I don't think we're going to stay together for very long. The point is that marriage finds its greatest joy and fulfillment when two people who are getting married share a life's purpose. Now, that purpose might involve some ambitions or goals or activities. It might be related to career. But here's the truth. Eventually, all of our careers will end. Eventually, all our work will trickle down to nothing, and we will simply grow old and rest. And yet, even in the years when our work is finished, we can still have a purpose because somewhere underneath all the stuff we do, the core deepest purpose of our life isn't about what we do. It's about where we stand with God, our Savior. The deepest purpose of our life isn't in the activity of our hands or what we've produced, but ultimately where we've stood with Jesus Christ. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, any of you familiar with that? It was a teaching tool of the early church that um, basically asked a bunch of questions and then provided answers as a way to disciple people into the faith. And the first article of the Westminster Shorter Catechism says it this way. What is the chief end of man? In other words, what is the highest purpose, the, the main goal of a human being's life? And the answer is that man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That may involve some of the work we do, but what it's really saying is that at the heart of the matter, our greatest purpose in life is oriented around how we feel about the place of God in our lives. So when God says, I'm going to make a helper fit for Adam, what he's really saying is that among all the creatures that God made and populated the Garden of Eden with, only Eve was able to share this root purpose with him. That the other animals knew about God, ate, drank, slept, and all that, but only Eve could share with Adam this capacity for knowing God and building her whole life around him. They had obvious mammalian physiological compatibilities, right? I mean, there was clearly the sense that like, these two things go together, but that's not what made Eve a fit helper for Adam. It wasn't that they were the same species. It was that they shared the same basic capacity to know God and to build their lives around him. That's what 
bound them together in marriage. I really believe that a shared capacity to glorify God and enjoy Him is a key building block of marriage. Simply identifying as members of the same religion is not enough. Simply saying, look, I read my Bible, I go to church, my partner goes to to church and reads their Bible, isn't that enough? No, it's really not enough for a, a, a lasting marriage because marriage isn't just built on a common religion, it's built on a common posture towards the person of Jesus Christ. It's possible to attend the same church for the whole of your life and find that your faith is radically different than that of the person who sat in the pew next to you for 50 years. It's possible to attend church with 200 other people for the whole of your life and discover at the end, I missed something profoundly important here. That all these weeks I was going to this place, everybody else saw something I missed. That I sat there and listened to speeches and endured the offering time and the songs and the motions and all that and then went home, but there was something amazing happening here that I didn't access. What I'm really saying is, it's not enough to say that we have the same religion on the census form, but that we have the same attitude and heart towards Jesus Christ. That's what makes this relationship work. I've discovered whether it's brothers and sisters, friends, spouses, the only real reliable way to make a relationship last for life and be fruitful is to build it on the same platform with respect to Jesus Christ. You know, last night I was at the Grip Gala, and uh, that's a picture from, that's Scott up there greeting everybody, and it was a packed house. It's the fullest I have ever seen the Grip Gala, and the way the Grip Gala works is that, that after they present one facet of their ministry, people are given like these paddles, almost like giant numbers the way you would at an auction, and when they ask for donations of a certain amount, people raise their paddles, and it's a lot of fun. You never think you could have so much fun giving away money, uh, but If you've ever been to the Grip Gala, you'll understand what I'm saying. You get caught up in all that God is doing. And I was there last night with about 30 other people from Harvest. Uh, I was really encouraged to see a great turnout. And here's what I saw every time um, the bidding opened up. I would see couples all around the room having hushed conversations. (laughs) And then I would see someone pull out their phones. I'm like, are you opening your Bank of America app? What are you doing here? But they're clearly negotiating something before they raise their paddle. And you can see that neither one of them would raise the paddle without conferring with the other. Now, at one level, I think they were negotiating how much money they can and are willing to give. But really, in those conversations, what they were negotiating is, are we on the same page regarding our primary purpose in life? It's not just a financial decision, but what they're really saying is, do we believe that God has the same place in both of our lives. What I love uh, about going to the Grip Gala with Jeannie is that we are on the same page. The only limitation is our bank account. But if we had more money, I know that if I said, let's give $25,000, Jeannie would say, let's do it. There's this tremendous joy in finding out that you don't just know how to analyze things the same way, but you believe at the heart of things the same way. What I really mean is there's a joy in being able to follow God's leading on your heart without betraying your spouse's heart. 
There's also great pain when you feel God pulling so heavily on your heart and yet your spouse does not agree with you about those things. So this unity of purpose is about this. It's not just agreeing together what life will look like. It's agreeing together what life is for. Do you see the difference? That if you don't answer that primary question, there's going to be conflict one after another. If you, for example, got into marriage for one reason and your spouse got into marriage for another reason, there's no way you're going to avoid the collision that's coming. Imagine if you convinced your spouse to let you buy a $60,000 Range Rover 4x4 vehicle. And the reason you wanted the cars to go off-roading in the mud every weekend. And the reason she wanted the car was to have it perfectly waxed and show it off at the shopping mall every weekend. You've agreed on a purchasing decision, but you're in deep, deep disagreement about what the car is for in the first place. And every time she sees it in the garage caked with mud, she will be ticked. It's not because you couldn't afford the car, but it's because you are in fundamental disagreement about its purpose. I often tell couples in premarital counseling that the best, and if you've been through premarital counseling with me, you know we do address relationship stuff. But more and more over the years, my premarital counseling ministry has evolved to where we almost talk nothing about the mechanics of marriage and everything about the place of Jesus Christ in our lives. Yes, we will address your relational stuff. But what I'm growing to understand is that the best preparation for marriage or any other human relationship is to renew your relationship with Christ. Because if that is weak, you cannot make these lesser relationships work. If you follow Jesus, the greatest equipping to have a good relationship is to love and prioritize Jesus together. So if I were to ask you today, what is your life's purpose? How would you answer? And would you say that you and your mate believe the same thing about the answer to that question? If you're not married and you anticipate being married someday, can I encourage you not to walk into cars without knowing where the driver is headed? Because to attach yourself to someone who values fundamentally different things, who looks at God differently than you, is a recipe for great pain to come. I want to encourage you instead to focus on your relationship with Christ and invite him to be the glue that holds all of your relationships together. A second building block of marriage is a shared confidence in decisions. At some point, after all the deliberation and prayer and fasting and dating, every couple has to pull the trigger on the biggest decision of their earthly life. Next to accepting Christ, choosing a mate is, I think, the most profoundly important decision of any human being's life. And it's not an easy decision to make because of all the people you've known or will come to know, you're permitted to pick just one to spend the rest of your life with. It's a huge decision because that's the face you're going to look at forever. Those are the same old jokes you're going to have to pretend to laugh at for the rest of your life. (laughs) 
Those are the same habits that are going to irritate you like a pebble stuck in your shoe until you're old. How do you pick just one? How do you do it? Where does the confidence come from to get down on your knees and say, this is my one shot and I pick you? Not not everybody walks into marriage with that attitude. Some people say, hey, let's give it a try. Will you be my first wife? If it doesn't work out, that's what Control Z was invented for, right? We just undo this thing, go our separate ways, split the money, just keep going. But if you intend to make it for life, how do you find the confidence to choose? Well, we get a hint when we look at the way that Eve is brought into Adam's life. And let me ask you a question to illustrate. How many people in the world can say to you, smell my finger? And you will actually smell that finger. How many people are on that very short list of people who could go, hey, smell my finger, and you're like, <sighs> guys, you know, if, if your guy friend is holding that finger out, it's been in his butt, right? You just, you just know it. Or it's been in something nasty because... That's not a simple question. And when you decide, will I smell the finger, what are you really deciding? It's not what's on the finger, but whose hand that finger is attached to. What I'm saying is the basis of your confidence in making that decision isn't about analyzing the thing being offered. It's about analyzing who's doing the offering. I'm sure that Adam, when he saw Eve, was smitten by her. But can I tell you that he married her knowing nothing about her? They had just met. He was emerging from general anesthesia. (laughs) And here's this naked woman standing there. He goes, all right. That's way better than all the animals I named like yesterday. I'll take her. And he says yes, and he accepts her on the basis of almost no experience or knowledge of her. And that's a scary thing because we are given no guarantees about the future, are we? At this moment, when we decide to get married, the future seems so bright, but we are given no guarantees about how we will change or how they will change in the future. We have no guarantees about how life will change and affect each of us in the future. So how do we get the confidence in that moment to actually pick one person and move forward with the rest of our lives. Adam agrees with God that he's alone and it's not good. But that's where Adam's part in all of this ends. And he's literally knocked unconscious. He's not even awake for the rest of it. From that point on, Father God does everything to provide for him a mate. And the fact that he is knocked unconscious is as blatant as it can get. He's saying, this is, marriage is not about a man working out, flexing, pulling up in a smooth ride, having nice clothes and a six-pack abs and, and saying, look, I got the girl. Marriage is not about the hard work we do to seduce, pursue, woo, chase, stalk somebody else until we get them. But what it says is that God created Eve and he brought her to the man. 
so that when he sees her, his confidence doesn't come from what Eve is like so much as it comes from the fact that he has always been able to trust this God. That this God has given him nothing but good things. He knows that this God knows him and loves him and wants only what is good for him. And because Adam knew the sound of God's voice, he knew the sight of God's face and his hands, when God held this woman out, his decision to move forward was entirely driven by his trust in God, his confidence in his relationship with God, not in his relationship with Eve. If we're the ones who pursue and seduce and win our mate, let me give you some news. Because we're all sinful, because we're all broken, everyone who ever gets married will deeply disappoint their spouse. We will break our spouse's heart. We will cast them into seasons of deep doubt and despair. You can't help it because you can't be everything to anyone. Think about how much you need as a human being. I want to have fun, but I also want to cry I want to be serious, but I want to be playful. I want to have safety, but I also want to have adventure. Think about how complicated and greedy and fickle your heart is, how much you need that even all the people you've met in your lifetime aren't enough to fill this deep need to be alive, to be human. I want so much. How can one person deliver all of it in a single package? Isn't it insanity to ask that? Isn't it insanity to ask that of another person? Will you be everything I need to feel alive, to feel happy, to be human? Are you crazy asking another broken person to try to give that to you? Would anyone say yes if that was a proposal? I have such infinite needs to be happy and at peace and to feel whole and alive. Will you be the one who gives me that? How many of you can say yes to a proposal like that? It would be almost impossible. No, forget almost. It would be impossible. And because we will fall short of the mark, because by definition we will disappoint our spouse someday, if we're the ones who picked them, if we're the ones who seduced and plotted and worked to get them, then when those days of disappointment come, it will devastate us. It will unravel us. Because in that moment, what will happen is you'll say, I chose you. What the heck was I thinking? Am I stupid? How on earth did I think this was going to be a good idea? And you will get into a a cycle of regret and doubt and second-guessing the choice you have made. But imagine a different course. Imagine that instead of you choosing someone, your heavenly father who has known and loved you well all your life, raised up another human being, pressed a button deep in their heart that made them fall in love with you, and presented this person as his wise choice for you. Do you understand the world of difference it makes when you believe that God chose your spouse for you rather than you choosing your spouse for yourself. Because then when the inevitable days of falling short, of being disappointed and unhappy come, rather than regret and doubt and second-guessing, your response can be one of trusting faith and confidence. God, you knew 
that this fool I married was going to act like this. You knew this was in them, and yet you somehow put me together with them. I don't know what you're doing, but I know that you love me, and I trust you to get us through this. I trust you to know what you're doing when you put me with this person. And I'm not comfortable, and I'm not happy right now. But my ability to go forward isn't based on this other broken person. It's based on you. I think this is why it's so important to learn the daily habit and discipline of listening for and responding to the voice of Jesus in even the small decisions. Should I buy this or not? Oh, here's that person calling again. Should I pick up or send it to voicemail? Should I get angry and lose my temper? Or should I forgive? There's a million little decisions over the course of everyday life that we will either make on our own or we will listen for the voice of Jesus and make a habit of responding. And if you learn to understand and recognize the voice of Jesus, and he says in John 10, we can grow to learn to recognize his voice. Then when the days of big decision and disappointment come, we will be able to move forward in confidence rather than doubt because we know we can trust him. Let me give you a final building block of marriage. That is a shared commitment to selflessness. You know, I've said for a long time that I believe the greatest poison to all human relationships is self-centeredness and selfishness. A person who loves and is concerned for themselves more than anyone else cannot make a good relationship with anyone. Verse 24, he says that somehow, like as if, if by a miracle, a man and a woman will leave their parents and take the plunge and become one flesh. We know intellectually that marriage is based on some weird math. One plus one equals one. Intellectually, we know that that's how it's supposed to work. Can we just admit together that the actual experience of that is sometimes horrific? You can't act like that's romantic. That is dying to yourself. There is a kind of self-death involved with becoming one with another human being. In fact, in the early years of our ministry, I used to tell all the people in premarital counseling, a couple days before your wedding, I want you to go somewhere quiet and have a solemn funeral service for single you. And I wasn't kidding. Some of the people actually took me up on it, and they said they were deeply moved by the emotional experience because they sat in a quiet place and said, Hey, single me? free to go about as I please, wear what I want, buy what I want, spend what I want, go where I want. You're dying in a few days. And in that place will be a new thing that we will move from me and I to we and us forever. That while once 
I only answer to myself. Till death, I will now answer to another. Do you understand that two becoming one isn't just like some precious moments? Two becoming one is two people dying and being reborn into one new thing. And don't for a moment over-romanticize it and make it seem like it's so easy. It's not. Most of us spend the first three, four, five, thirty years of our marriage staggering under the weight of just how deep this runs, how much is required of us to join together with another human being. If you haven't felt any of that in your marriage, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> Promise you. Because if you really go to the depths of becoming one, it will mess with you. It will rob you of some things you didn't want to let go of. The reason that I don't ride a motorcycle today is because one plus one equals one. I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> okay, I, now I'm distracting myself. <laughs> Look at verse 25. Uh, my thing stopped working here. Can you guys advance the slide for me? Okay. It also says that the husband and wife were both naked, and yet they were unashamed. There's another kind of self-death in being that vulnerable and being that known and seen by another person. I've asked this before. How many of you like being naked in the locker room at the health club? Like, that's your favorite time of the workout. There's a guy at the, work, at the gym I used to work at. I think that was his favorite time. Like, he was done showering, shaving. He still liked to just walk around. I'm like, please, put it away. But very few people enjoy being exposed. It's not a pleasant experience, and sometimes in conversation, people we know start getting a little too honest with us, and we don't like it. We have our own narrative that we can live with. I'm like this because X, Y, Z, and we repeat it enough times so we can actually live with ourselves without despairing of who we are. But deep, deep down in our hearts, we know that a lot of the things others are saying about us are true. We feel insecure and ashamed and disappointed in ourselves. That's why we get defensive and angry when people get too honest because no one really enjoys the experience of being too exposed, too vulnerable. And sometimes people will look right at you and they'll take a risk and say, it's like this with you, isn't it? And even though something in the back of your mind says that's absolutely right and I've always known it, that won't be what we usually say with our mouths. We will punish the person who got too honest because vulnerability to be truly known and understood and seen requires a death to ourselves. That's another self-death that we're usually not prepared for in marriage. The beauty of marriage is that this one person above all others sees you all the time. There's a continuity there. You can't pretend for very long with the person you marry because they're there when you're not performing. They're there after the dinner party when all the guests have gone home and you went from, oh, how delightful that you were able to come to. Everybody stop what you're doing right now. Wash these dishes. Get to bed right now. And you're like, you're like screaming like an animal. And the other people are going, what just happened? What happened to the delightful hostess? She became a monster. 
you can't pretend in front of the person you're with all the time. And there is a kind of death to self required to be that vulnerable, that open. Pause for a moment and think about this. If you are married, I want you to think about something. Are there things that you don't talk about with your spouse because you know that the minute you bring up the subject, you're going to be punished for it? Yeah, I would mention, because I know this is true because I've said to people, hey, would you mind talking to your um, husband about this? I would, but you know, you're, you're married to him. Would you mind just bringing it? Like, <laughs> you try. I'm, I'm not going there. That's not a safe place to go. And when you hear words like that, you realize that there's something off in that marriage because there shouldn't be that dynamic in healthy marriage. To build a really healthy marriage, there must be this shared commitment to selflessness, to die to ourselves, to say, I'm not going to stand here and defend myself and protect myself and provide for myself and live for myself. From this day forward, I will die to self. And I will now live for us. That what always was mine and me, I now choose to make ours and us. Where I once used to manage what people saw of me, I used to control people's impression of me. I used to hide what I didn't like. With you, I will die to myself and be fully exposed. What is it about selflessness and that kind of exposure that scares us so much? I think it's because deep down we suspect that if I don't protect myself, nobody else will. If I don't take care of me, who else will? Honestly. And that's where some of us are right now in our lives. We're at a place of desperate self-preservation, believing that if I stop fighting for me, no one else in the universe will fight for me. And this is where I say to you, you're wrong. And I don't say that as a rebuke. I say that as an invitation. Someone is fighting for you. Someone does desperately care for you. Someone who knows everything about you and accepts you as you are. Somebody who doesn't demand things of you without giving, but somebody who has been totally selfless towards you. Who won't ask you to die from a place of safety, but has died for you. Before he became a Christian, The Apostle Paul was a very hard-working religious zealot. He treasured every achievement. He recorded every sacrifice because he was desperately building a righteousness for himself. But then he met Jesus, who released him, so that one day he was able to give this testimony. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. A person cannot become unselfish without the love of Jesus Christ that sets them free. You will always protect yourself until you meet the one who protects you. You will always save yourself until you truly meet the one who saves you. 
And if your heart is still in need of saving, you won't find it in your marriage. You will only find it in the person of Jesus Christ. If you're struggling to feel alive and whole and happy, the answer is not to be found in a spouse. It's to be found in your Savior. It's the only way that we will ever gain the capacity for selflessness that's required for all human relationships. I will simply end as I invite Pastor Jared to to get ready to lead us in communion. That really marriage isn't just about two people learning to get along. But it's an arena in which we learn more about the way God wants to relate to us. And whether you are in a marriage or out of a marriage, here's the most important lesson. That before we can focus on our relationships with other people, we have to remember the great relationship that we are invited to have with Jesus Christ himself. That relationship changes everything. And remembering him leads to really good relationships with other people. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.